This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Corey Johnson. We're here every day bringing the latest news in the world of business and finance. And the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. Yes, there are a lot of opportunities, particularly in the world of fixed income. If you happen to be speaking to Jerry Paul, he is the senior vice president of fixed income and portfolio manager of the Icon Flexible Bond Fund. They are based in Colorado, but he joins us here in our 1130 studio. Jerry, thanks very much for, for coming in. You know, uh, we were just speaking uh, before the, the program about when I asked you how your year is going, you said you're doing great, but a lot of your colleagues, a lot of people in the bond industry are not having such a great year. Maybe just describe for people, what do you do that's different and why are you having a good year? Well, thanks uh, Thanks for having me on here uh, today, guys. Uh, uh, yeah, we do uh, what I refer to as value-oriented bond investing. Uh, we don't pay a lot of attention to uh, what the Fed's up to. Well, obviously, we know. Um, and we don't uh, spend a lot of time trying to forecast interest rates. We're, we're focused on bond picking or bond-like uh, instruments. Uh, uh, an easy example is uh, closed-in bond funds, not a space that's very well known, uh, trades inefficiently because big investors uh, can't get involved with it because it's got low liquidity. You know, we had the situation where activists are involved, and a few weeks ago, uh, a uh, closed-in fund that was trading at a 6.5-7% discount to the value of the portfolio announced that they were going to merge with uh, an open-end sister fund. Immediately, that discount disappears. Uh, in one fell swoop, you have a bond that's up five or six points. Uh, that's kind of a big deal in, in the bond world. Tell people what is a – how would you define a closed-end bond fund for people that are new to this world? Well, a closed-end bond fund, unlike my open-end fund, uh, is sold and uh, trades on the exchanges. Uh, they, they are well-known for trading at a discount to net asset value over time. And there are a group of uh, uh, three or four activists out there, uh, not Carl Icahn, but uh, people of that bent, if you will, who are intent on uh, getting these funds uh, discounts to close up to zero if they can through a liquidation or, in the case that I just described, an open ending. And the discount goes away at that point in time. As a smaller fund... We can participate in that sort of stuff and establish a large enough position for it to be significant. I had a 15 basis point gain from just that one situation on the day that uh, that all occurred. So wow. that's a big deal in, so how, in the bond yeah. so world. How, how big a position is, is your biggest position? Like what, what are you willing to go to in your fund? Well, the the one that I'm referring yeah. to is about a 3% position. Until it uh, went up and then it was a bigger position. And, and uh, uh, we run a concentrated portfolio, yeah. again, in terms of how are we different. Uh, today, I probably only have 60 line items in my portfolio. 60 is a lot. For as opposed to, to the thousands that yeah. some of the larger funds can own. So I... 
so once upon a time, I, I was a portfolio manager uh, uh, at, a, at a value fund, uh, value long and short garbage, right? That was sort of the, the, the long short strategy. Uh, but it was it was purely focused on equities. And I, I'm curious how your work might be different than that of a value equity investor as a value bond investor. It's, it's typically driven. What, what we're trying to do, Corey, is we're trying to identify the chinks in efficiency where, you know, other players can't play or the bond market itself has uh, an inefficiency charter arbitrage uh, if you've got a split rated bond the investment grade guys may not be able to buy it because a split rated bond would typically be double b on one side and triple b on the Wait, other so what is it i don't understand that explain what a, a split rated bond a split rate again a Moody's rating of, let's say, B, Oh, I see. One, B, one agency's got a different number on it. Got different it. agency ratings, and a lot of the investment-grade uh, investors will be restricted that they need both sides to, huh, be, to be investment-grade. If you can identify that uh, the double B side is likely to go to uh, a triple B. An example that we're playing in right now uh, that uh, even your stock investors can relate to is the NX. NXP right. Qualcomm merger. NXP Semiconductor, which Qualcomm's made a bid for, and they're in the middle exactly. of a takeover battle. And, and, and NXP's bonds are BA on one side and triple B on the other side. Let's just say, Corey, that you're an investment grade guy. You love the single A minus Qualcomm paper. I can buy the split rated that you can't yet because you need investment grade we'll, on both yeah. sides. Uh, I can buy that 100 or whatever cheap to Qualcomm paper. I'm just sitting there like an equity arbitrage guy might be today. He's long the NXP stock with the view that he's going to get paid you know, a higher price by Qualcomm when the deal gets closed. I'm looking for that deal to close. Now, my backup plan comes back to the split rated. We think NXP is likely to become triple B on both sides right. anyway. But, but and if it gets bought out, if, or even if it doesn't get bought out, you mean? Yeah. Yes, and if it gets bought out, then it becomes Qualcomm single A paper, and as you guys know, single A paper trades tighter than uh, right. split rated paper. The other day, the twenty first or whatever it was, when uh, when we saw bond yields getting hit, the NXP bonds actually rose a point that day because the news that came out was that Qualcomm was raising their bid. So it's those sorts of things. Interesting stuff. Jerry Paul, uh, you got to come back because uh, I really enjoy this conversation. Jerry Paul joins us from Colorado. He's portfolio manager of the Icon Advisors Fund. Uh, uh, interesting stuff indeed. Yes, we got the love. John Love with us right now, the CEO of U.S. Commodity Funds. Uh, and they've got some interesting products. Uh, commodities uh, blended into ETFs. It's an interesting product, and John Love is here to uh, describe it. Talk to me about sort of how you provide commodity exposure to an ETF investor. Sure. Well, thanks for having me on. What we basically do is uh, buy the futures contracts, which is essentially what, when people are looking at commodities, commodity prices on uh, TV, newspaper, whatever, they're, they're probably looking at a futures price. So we, we own the futures contracts. We have a number of single commodity ETFs like USO and UNG, which hold 
oil and natural gas, respectively. And then we have a broad commodity fund, USCI, which holds 14 commodities at a time out of a universe of 27 and attempts to select those that we think will uh, do better or that our index uh, rules show will do better, uh, tend to do better in the market based on certain conditions. Okay, so should the price of the ETF track the price of a specific commodity? That's an excellent question. Um, On a day-to-day basis, yes. So if you're looking at a single commodity like crude oil, and you're investing in the uh, the futures contracts, you do have a condition uh, that the contracts expire, so you're required to roll those contracts on a periodic basis. And depending on the shape of the futures curve, you can have a condition called contango, or the reverse of that, uh, the inverse of that is called backwardation. backwardization. Yeah, you know, yeah. And contango can be a headwind to yeah. your uh, to your return. So you want to be aware of which way the market's going. It it's, doesn't mean you can't have a positive return, but it is a headwind. And backwardation, uh, you actually kind of earn roll yield as you own the own the uh, the contracts, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to have a have a positive return. You, so one could really screw that up in trading. <laughs> it's something you have to bear in mind. We do have two products that own the whole front of the curve and the uh, in uh, oil and natural gas, which attempt to mitigate the contango. So if you are looking, if you're kind of a longer term holder, that might be something that you want to take a look at. But we'd also recommend if you really, you know, you want commodities because you want the diversification and the inflation protection. So you want to go out broad and you can get that through, um, you know, a broader vehicle that gives you exposure to more commodities with different drivers. Now, tell us about the basket, the one that that has a variety of commodities in it, because we want to get to the idea that commodity prices may be trending higher. Sure. Um, well, a couple of things uh, on that. And uh, the product itself, uh, like I said, it owns 14 commodities out of a universe of 27. We use a rules-based methodology to select them. We actually look for the least backward or most backward-dated contracts or least contangoed contracts. We look at 12-month price momentum, and we rebalance monthly to equal weights. So we're trying to give you that broad exposure that uh, provides the things that, that you're looking at, as opposed as uh, in terms of what you you were talking about in terms of the market, um, it is a it is a great way to uh, diversify your portfolio. If you look at uh, what the market did from uh, January 26th to February 8th, when equities were down, uh, commodities show kind of nice horizontal uh, returns as uh, as equities were dropping. So it's an interesting way to uh, to get out there, take advantage of uncorrelated. Uh, assets and uh, have something in your portfolio that's uncorrelated to equities, uh, and, and yet you've got a, a, a higher trading burden than most ETFs. I would I would argue. You probably you're like, yeah, I know Johnson. I I don't sleep at night. I got it. Yeah, they uh, we we do uh, obviously depending on the on the product. Uh, they have different roll schedules, but right. we do have to roll the contracts. So you know, at least once a, once a month with USO, we'll be selling our contracts. Right. With other products, it depends on the role schedule. We, but um, we do have to uh, uh, buy so and sell. So uh, therefore, uh, what expenses higher than your typical ETF? They may be a, a bit higher. Um, it is not astronomical or, or anything uh, crazy. But depending on the fund and the frequency of trading, I think that can add somewhere between five to fifteen basis points to an expense ratio. So. It's a factor, but I don't think um, a, a lot of trading costs with equity funds aren't necessarily uh, factored into the expense ratio. So it's not something that uh, we see as a huge detriment to the products. Now, this uh, United States Commodity Index Fund, the symbol there, USCI, 
how do you determine how much of a particular commodity contract to put into the fund? Because I'm looking, for example, you've got cotton, you've got tin, you've got zinc, you've also got gas oil as well as gold. How do you determine what goes in there? I know it's rules-based, but what are the rules? So the rules are, number one, we look for seven commodities that are uh, either least backwardated or most contangled, uh, sorry, most backwardated or least contangled. So you're looking for the optimal place on the future. But why seven? Curve. I mean, like, why not 10 or five? Or, you know, the, like the, reason, the reason for seven there is because we there's another trade or another signal that, that tends to be very um, indicative of future po- uh, commodity performance, which is 12-month price momentum. So we decided to kind of split the, uh, the difference and take seven based on one signal, seven based on another. We then, the size is equal weights every month. So we rebalance to those equal weights and we always make sure we're in every single uh, of the six commodity sectors. So we're always giving you that um, broad exposure as opposed to overweighting the portfolio to energy or any particular commodity or sector. And that's, um, you know, the bottom line on, on the question is um, equal weights. That's, that's the way we think you should go because these commodities have such different drivers and there's the, the correlation of your, any two commodities is about 20%. So it's very low compared to equities. Well done. Thanks very much for coming in and explaining all this to us. Uh, John Love is the president and the uh, chief executive of United States Commodity Fund. That's USCF. They manage about uh, $3.5 billion of uh, customer assets. Yes, indeed. Out of Oakland, California, the company. Out of Oakland. He's, but he's living down in Southern California. And I've lived in Oakland, California, and I've been in Southern California. And, See the way know, that works? It's hard to pick. Oakland's pretty awesome. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets with Carol Masser and Corey Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Someone I love even more than your average S1 filing is Alex Barinka. She joins us right now. She's our IPO reporter of the breaking news at Spotify, which has filed an F1 because it's a foreign company, uh, is planning a listing. Uh, uh, what do we see in this, Alex? And I, have, I know you were just on TV talking about it. I'm, I'm, I've got the benefit of looking at it in front of me. Uh, I am seeing uh, some nice, juicy financial numbers that we're finally getting yeah. our hands on. Um, namely, I'm looking at the revenue numbers. They posted about 4 billion euros uh, or about 4.9 billion U.S. dollars in revenue last year. That was up 39% from a year earlier. And, and they're counting this compound annual growth rate of 45% as well. So that definitely caught my eye. What also caught my eye was the 1.2 euro, billion euros in losses they also posted posted in 2017. Um, Spotify is also kind of touting here the stickiness of its users also. It's 71 million subscription users. They said in the fourth quarter, monthly active users listen to about 25 hours of of music a month, uh, which they're claiming helps them kind of keep this reigning top spot in the music streaming industry. So in terms of of numbers, Corey, those are the kind of big things that I'm paying attention to uh, as we get this first look in this registration statement for uh, Spotify's direct listing. And just a little bit more, Alex, uh, Pim Fox here, you know, looking at the company's growth, is that what you believe investors are going to be focused on? Because 71 million subscribers, uh, premium subscribers as of December uh, 31 at the end of the year, I mean, 71 million, is that really considered a lot? 
For this industry, it is. Um, that, and that's also kind of what they're touting in terms of, of the opportunity here. They're saying uh, this industry is set to grow very quickly. Uh, Goldman Sachs has puts, pegs this at about $30 billion in revenue by 2030. So this is a growing space. And the other kind of competitors who have moved in, whether it be Apple Music or Pandora, which has been struggling, have kind of floundered, um, which Spotify is used as kind of a, a double down for how well they've been doing. So, yes, it's a growing space. It's still a small one. They're still fighting with the likes of the free content that you can get yeah. on YouTube and things like that. Um, but, you know, if I if I look at the narrative they're trying to lay out here, they are kind of pushing on the fact that they know their users really well, that they have data on their users and can create these curated playlists, which I don't think is wholly surprising, um, but it does kind of reinforce this differentiation that Spotify is pushing. Well, and, and, and let's, uh, you know, take note of what they say in the filing. So in the filing, they say their monthly active users grew 29% year over year from uh, uh, in December at the end of, the, of 2017, or 29% growth. But they also say in, that the industry, streaming revenues in the industry are growing by 60%. So that suggests either that, that the companies are getting more money from existing users than, or they're able to pull more money out of the average users or that Spotify is losing market share. If the business is growing by 60% or, or overall, and they're only seeing 29% uh, monthly active user growth, and I think you said 26% revenue growth, that's, that might suggest that they've got issues. It might, and the tricky thing here for investors is there's no roadshow for Spotify for them to ask this question. Um, that that would be something in a traditional IPO where there is a there is a roadshow and kind of that marketing period. Um, there's the back and forth between investors and the company as they address their concerns and and kind of uh, make their input on valuation. Uh, so investors are just going to have to kind of square up on on these issues that you're bringing up, Corey, because as this filing says, they're just going to show up on day one, uh, and the opening price will be determined by the buy and sell orders collected on listing day. So, you know, whether it be uh, why aren't you growing as fast as the industry is growing, or is this a, uh, a business that can square with kind of the, the demands from the content creators, from the music industry creators? Uh, those are questions that investors are going to have to probably wait until the first couple earnings to actually be able to uh, sling over to Spotify. Only, only on Bloomberg Radio do we describe a rapper and a rock star as a content creator. <laughs> Alex Brinko, you give us great content. Thank you so much for that. I know you're working on this breaking story, so I really appreciate your time. You, you know, Corey, just one other thing I just want to ask you about as well, because I'm looking at the at the filing, and it says they have something. It's called estimated future minimum guarantee commitments. Oh, that ain't good. Right. And what this so, means is that yeah. they have to pay, for, obviously, the license fees for the music, whether they have 71 million subscribers or seven subscribers and those commitments total 1.7 billion uh euros so you can do the math that's over yeah. two billion uh sounds a lot like dollars. Netflix. not quite as bad as Netflix, well that was but... the yeah spencer soper joins us right now he's in seattle Maybe we should listen to Kurt Cobain. I don't know, uh, but uh, or, or Jimmy for that matter. But uh, instead of watching rock and roll for his, he keeps track of what's going on at Amazon for Bloomberg News. And uh, Spencer, uh, talk to me about Amazon and Apple and what they're doing to do, deal with this issue. We just heard President Trump talking about gun control. Well, they're they're not doing anything, and that's what has people hopping mad. Um, uh, a, a lot of gun control activists that have grown frustrated with uh, uh, the lack of any kind of 
response, legislative response to all of these school shootings are targeting businesses, and they've had some success with, uh, you know, many businesses, including airlines and hotels and car rental companies, actually ending their relationships with the National Rifle Association, this, this powerful political gun lobby. Um, so now they're, they're kind of emboldened by a lot of this action they've been able to get on the business front, and now they're going after uh, Amazon and Apple and even Roku over uh, NRA TV, which is actually the NRA's uh, online, pre-online channel. They have, like, political commentary programming, little bite-sized snippets, basically, of pro-gun political commentary. And uh, some shoppers are saying, listen, we want you to disassociate your brand with the NRA, and if you don't, we'll stop shopping uh, with you. What has been the reaction of the companies? Anything in detail? No, nothing. Head in the sand. That's that's the traditional, like, when, when there's a social media backlash today, it's like, you know, everyone has access to a, to a you know, Twitter account or Facebook, uh, that sort of thing. This stuff can really blow up quickly it's always a question of is it going to be a flash in the pan or not and the traditional reaction has been to be kind of keep quiet and wait it out but on this gun control issue we're seeing a lot of companies are not doing that and and are stepping out but 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 amazon and apple have been been quiet on this and that's that's the question it's kind of like a like a like a stare down here are will, will the momentum from shoppers continue pressuring these folks or can they be can they just be quiet and and and, and wait it out that's kind of what we're what we're waiting to see here uh, so, so the notion that maybe this is different this time—that with with children sort of leading the way—that uh, that that the traditional response of this is going to blow over and we'll keep doing the same things we've been doing, which is what we've seen uh, in prior shootings uh, in schools—that maybe that uh, Amazon and Apple are sort of betting on that. Yeah, that's the, that's that's the question, right? Is uh, uh, will, will this latest um, uh, effort? Have momentum and traction that continues and sustains, and if it does, it's going to be di- it's going to be difficult for for uh, companies to to remain on the sidelines. And and that's the that's the key question here is you know con- consumer advocacy. It's like customers are demanding you know taking more of a you're with us or against us approach. And if they're de- inaction is seen as action by in the in the mind of many consumers. And so that's what we're, we're waiting to see if this. Uh, uh, if this issue fades out or if, if these consumer advocates are able to smoke out um, Apple and, and Amazon. And Amazon in particular historically has, has kept out of this kind of stuff. Um, you know, and it's, it's survived many boycotts. You know, it's had boycotts related to, uh, uh, you know, its treatment of, of uh, warehouse workers. It's faced boycotts related to, uh, you know, its, its lack of collection of sales taxes. Um, it even faced a boycott over its, uh, uh, it, it very briefly defended its sale of an e-book Titled something like the, the the pedophile's guide to relationships or something. It was this very uh, crazy book uh, written about pedophilia that Amazon briefly defended before capitulating and saying, "Yeah, you know what? Maybe we shouldn't be be selling this book." But historically, they've been open to kind of the, the free free flowing ideas. Well, Spencer, I mean, is there no irony that's lost on the fact that most of these companies make their money by having people use the internet or go online? And as a result, whether it's Apple, Roku, or Amazon, uh, that they use the very services that these tech giants are now stepping away from, basically saying we're neutral about this. They're not neutral when it comes to things like net neutrality from the FCC. Yeah, I mean, there, there is an irony. and it, 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 It's even just tough to understand the, the significance of it because you could very easily go to NRA.org 
and watch an RATV to your heart's content without Apple, without Amazon, without Roku. Uh, you know, you, th this content is accessible to you. It's it's more a question of are these brands somehow making it easier or it, or broadening the group's visibility by offering the channel on its on its streaming devices. Well, Spencer, I wasn't even thinking that you know you have to come down one way or the other on this. In other words, not to uh, prejudge anyone's opinion on it, but that as uh, corporate entities that they can't just remain silent, that they need to uh, at least have some kind of public stance. Yeah, if you're if you're a company like Amazon or Apple that has a you know general consumer products and wants to appeal to the masses, you you don't want to have to slice and dice the population. And it, and let's face it, businesses are in a different um, situation than than politicians in elections. Elections are winner take all. You know, if you win by one vote or millions of votes, um, you know you you won that election, uh, and and you get all of the fruit of winning that election. Whereas the marketplace is, is different. You know, you if you alienate five percent of your customers, that's a that's a big deal to to your to your bottom line. Uh, it, it's it's interesting too that you know here you have a company, particularly in the case of uh, of of Apple, where uh, they have come out on a number of social issues, and I think the people think of that company in a certain Tim way. Tim Cook and, and chief Tim executive Cook, of Apple, right? Steve Jobs. That, that well, the company didn't take political stance necessarily. It seemed to stand for something, or would use the iconography of people who stand for something. And I, and I wonder if once they've done it on a couple of issues like same-sex marriage, that that it becomes incumbent upon them, or at least they are being called to uh, hold to a standard uh, that is like uh, the standard they've set in other issues. Had they, well, let me rephrase this. I'm babbling. What I'm trying to say is that once they've done it once, they're being called on to do it again. Yeah, there's always the the fear of the fear of precedent, and especially with streaming services. And even think about Amazon as its roots as a as a bookseller. You know, it's it, it's very very dangerous to be muscled around uh, based on viewpoint. And so the even though Apple and Amazon have been quiet on this. Roku did come out with a statement basically saying, like, look, we have policies uh, for our content, and, and RATV does not violate any of our policies, you know, basically around uh, anything illegal or, or you know, uh, uh, incenting uh, violence or that sort of thing. But they say it's not in violation of our policies, and we don't censor based on, based on viewpoint. All right. Well done. Thanks very much for uh, helping us understand what's going on. Spencer Soper, Bloomberg News uh, technology uh, reporter. I'm driving in my car, I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Yes, indeed, drive to the close right now. And time for us to take a look at the markets. Just about uh, nine minutes left in the trading day. J.J. Kinahan joins us right now, the chief market strategist at TD Ameritrade. And, J.J., this market's a lot more interesting. Uh, here we are on the last day of February. February is a lot more exciting uh, maybe than it needed to be. Yes, it certainly has been. Uh, we've seen quite a few sell-offs here, uh, and we've actually seen a little bit of a tone change overall. If you think about three months ago, raising rates was going to be a good thing because it was a vote of confidence in the economy and everybody was all for it. 
now that we're actually getting to the point where it looks like we're going to have some rate raises, all of a sudden it's the scariest thing in the world. So uh, just the, the general outlook from most market participants, for some reason, has turned pretty significantly on this topic. Well, uh JJ, maybe you could just comment on what you're seeing in the market trade today, because I was looking at, for example, all right, you got stock-specific stories like Celgene down nearly 9%. But then, you know, you're seeing just a general sell-off, and I'm wondering this is because, what, professionals, they sell the rally that we had? Yeah, it's it's interesting. I think part of this may be because it's happened all, I won't say all, but primarily in the last hour and a half where we're, we've really seen the uh, selling get somewhat aggressive. I'm wondering if it's a little bit of anticipatory based on Chairman Powell going up to the Hill yesterday, uh, you know, and, and the sell-off there is an anticipatory if we get a follow-up that there's another sell-off. So people just saying, I don't necessarily want to take any risk going into that. What, that he's going to say something different tomorrow? Tomorrow that he said before the house? Yes, only because he, you know, having listen the first time, and not that that's the first time he's ever testified up there, but it's the first time he's been the man, if you will, up there. And you know, I don't think you ever, in his position, want the market to have such a negative reaction to what you have to say. Although I would argue that everything he said was actually pretty positive for the economy. So, um, uh, so you will be paying careful attention to this. Would you change any investments based on on what he has to say? No, I, I, I think that this is more more. This is more about people where we've had a nice rally over the last few weeks. I really see it as more of a taking profits and uh, perhaps buying a little bit of insurance through the options market. If I look at the VIX, uh, just in case something goes awry. The other thing that I will say: Don't look at XIV. Don't do that. That was, that? Don't look at XIV. That was an ugly oh, one. No, no, don't do not look at XIV. Look at Ouch, unless I'm you sorry, really, really know it. what you're doing. Um, <laughs> that being said, this is, this has turned very aggressive here in the last little bit. So we'll have to see. Actually, what I, I want to watch on the close, and you know, we only have eight minutes left, which may be a good thing for the market, is that we hold this 2700 level on the on the close on the SPX. It's all you know, 19 points from here. So that would take a lot to happen. But this has uh, turned into a pretty Gone from a, you know, as we started this talking about a few single stock story to pretty aggressive selling across the board, uh, be it in, in and in all major indices, be it the Russell, the uh, S and P's, or the Nasdaq. Uh, JJ, looking at some retail names like Kohl's, they're going to be reporting tomorrow before the market opens. The stock currently higher right now; it's up a buck twenty-five. Also, we're going to get Nordstrom results. Tell us about retail. Well, I, I think what we want to look for in retail is, you know, we saw Walmart be a bit disappointing. Some of that, though, was self-inflicted in terms of what they were doing uh, in, in terms of their online sales and how they were reorganizing that. You know, the, the thing about Kohl's is, if you look at it, we're expecting about a 7.5% move looking at what the options market's pricing in, so we could go either way. The thing I think Kohl's has going for it, and, and I think Target does when it comes out in a week and a half, is that in the better economies, people tend to move up a little bit, if you will, so people may move up from Walmart to Kohl's or Walmart to Target. So they move up a little bit in quality. Uh, the one area where they tend to be a little more sticky is groceries, but in terms of clothing, et cetera, I think those, those companies have a really nice opportunity uh, when, when those numbers come out tomorrow. And the other one that's coming out that I think surprised a lot of us last quarter is the gap. 
So we'll see how their holiday season was also. So retail has a chance to have some big movers here over the next couple of days. Yeah, well, just looking at the S&P 500, as you say right now, it turns south just uh, at around 3 o'clock Eastern time. We're down about nine-tenths of a percent. Coles, though, going in the other direction and uh, adding to its gains uh, up a little bit more than 2% right now. What other areas? Uh, how about the energy market? You think that there is, we've been talking earlier today, energy stocks interested? Yeah, I am. And, and, you know, although crude's having a tough day today, we also saw that, you know, Chevron got a nice upgrade today. And, you know, with Chevron and Exxon, when I look there, I see two companies that still continue to pay nice dividends, although if rates go higher, that may fade a little bit. But the thing is, as we become more of an ex exporter of gas, the, the question you have to ask yourself with those two companies particularly is, do I want more exposure to pure crude, which would be Chevron, or do I want it to natural gas, chemicals, and crude, which would be ExxonMobil? So I still think that's a really interesting uh, area. And the one thing to keep in mind about those bigger crude oil companies is when the market sold, sold off, uh, they did not go down nearly as much as some of the other you know, big names in the market. So there is some resiliency to those in downside markets. And the, the big thing to me with there is, does crude hold $60? Currently trading about 61 and a half. Right, and then yeah. I think as long as we settle in with crude oil staying above $60 and finding a trading range there, those stocks are, are, are very interesting. Well, looking at crude, as you said, down about two and a quarter percent right now, 61.53 for NYMEX uh, crude. And looking at gasoline, though, also down about two and a half percent on the uh, on the NYMEX. And it's estimated this is going to be a very expensive or at least relatively expensive uh, driving season for Americans because uh, gasoline prices are higher than they were last year. Thanks uh, very much. And it makes a difference. It's, uh, it's amazing that that little thing it's makes a difference. But it's like a tax. It's the one price Americans pay attention to the very most. J.J. Kinahan, thank you very much. Uh, Chief Market Strategist, TD Ameritrade. You can follow him at TDA J.J. Kinahan. They're based in Chicago. Move around. Motion creates the motion. I feel the earth move under my feet. You move like they do. I've never seen anyone move that fast. Shake. All right, people, let's move like we've got a purpose. Something's called movers and shakers. They cost a little more, but that name cracked me up. Bloomberg Markets, Movers and Shakers, with Carol Masser and Corey Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. And taking a look at where stocks move today, yes, they close lower. And uh, looking at the constituents of the S&P 500, uh, 79 stocks advance, 425 issues decline, and one remains unchanged. And I know, Corey, you're taking a look at a bunch of uh, individual stocks. I was looking at TJX, uh, the stock up more than 6.5% today, better than estimated results and also increasing uh, the dividend and uh, really kind of uh, surprising a lot of analysts. Uh, indeed. Uh, you know, and i got to tell you, Pim, this is absolutely my favorite segment of the show. Because it. it's, 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 it's stressful Stocks to try to and companies. be on top of the news, but talking about companies, what companies do, talking about how they're different, talking about companies we don't always talk about. Companies so that which actually, one are you going to talk about? Stratasys, maker of oh, yes. 3D printers. And, and uh, full disclosure, 10 years ago, I was short this when I was a money manager, so I know the company a little bit. Um, and uh, a few years ago, I remember uh, being said, hey, 3D printing, it's the new thing. I'm like, it's not a new thing. It's 25 years old. Stratasys reported earnings for uh, the final quarter of the 
of the year and so the sales were down, actually up in the final quarter, 2%. But three years in a row now, remember all the hypes 3D printing was getting three years ago, Pim? We were all going to be 3D oh, printed. Oh, yeah, 3D printed people. Why not? Uh, they have had three years of revenue declines, down 7%, down 3%, down 1% for 2017. The quarter was ahead of estimates, which just tells you something about the analysts, I suppose, not really the company. But nonetheless, uh, the business um, uh, is struggling, and their guidance is not showing a lot of growth going forward. And on a gap basis, they lost a lot of money again. Uh, this is a business that has lost money, if I look back, uh, every year uh, uh, going back to 2012. And those losses have persisted into 2017, uh, losing uh, almost $10 million in a quarter. So Stratasys shares getting rocked today, down 15.3%. And as you heard Charlie Pellet say, uh, you know, as that the selling today picked up on the S&P 500 Stratasys, which is on the Russell, uh, so it's selling in those shares uh, accelerate, and again, down 15.3% today to uh, a pretty close to a 52-week load at $18.48, and cents, or $0.25, I should say. Well, I can't better uh, the the uh, the performance of, of Stratasys on the way down, but I will try. Celgene, the shares, they are down more than 9% today. This is the lowest level in more than three years. Why? Well, the Food and Drug Administration refused to review a filing for what is supposed to be Celgene's next multi-billion dollar opportunity. They've got a multiple sclerosis treatment, and it was expected to offset the company's reliance on its uh, best-selling drug, which is the cancer pill, Revlimid. Well, the disappointment comes after there was a study about another therapy on Crohn's disease and a pretty bad third quarter report. Having said all that, the shares of Celgene continuing their decline lower by 9% today. Your wife uh, is lovely and beautiful and fashionable, and I'll bet she doesn't shop at Chico's. Uh, I don't think there is a Chico's nearby. Um, uh, uh, Nonetheless... Uh, Where there is a Chico's... Yes and no. How's that? There is a crowd. Uh, Chico's uh, shares fantastic return, up 15.8% after reporting fourth quarter numbers. Uh, Remember, we were just talking earlier in the show about hope that maybe The Gap and others could show real positive results in in, uh, clothing sales, uh, clothing retailers. Well, Chico's a a terrific quarter. They beat uh, the estimates once again. All it tells you is the analysts were wrong. But comp sales were up. Uh, Gross margins improved. Uh, Better than expected earnings. And and they were able to take price, apparently. And that was really the great thing on the call, uh, according to some of the analysts who listened to it, saying that the prices are finally starting to come, or pieces are coming together for that company. Um, And uh, uh, as a result, we saw shares of Chico's today up 15.8%. I'm going to call that 16% because I can round numbers um, because I went to the second grade. And uh, uh, 15.8%, a nice move for Chico's. Sales, however, for the year were down uh, 8%, uh, but it looks like uh, at least according to some of the people listening to the call, look at those numbers that the turnaround has occurred at Chico's. Do you know what was up today? Volatility. Yeah, the volatility index, of course. Uh, the VIX up more than eight and a quarter percent. It adds 1.57. And I didn't look uh, at it today. There we uh, go. 20.16. So, uh, big move yesterday. We had a wow. 17.5% increase in the VIX yesterday, and now an eight and a quarter percent increase in the VIX today. This is Bloomberg Markets. Dave, you're up. Uh, hi, uh, my name is Dave. Wilson, where are you? Wilson! Just what do you think you're doing, Dave? We're going for the price on Wilson. Open up the door, it's Dave! Who? Dave! Hey, Mr. Wilson! 
Dave Wilson joins us right now with the stock of the day, Dave. And that would be Rogers Corporation, Corey. This is a company that's all about silicone and other advanced materials. Their products are used in electronics and communications gear, along with wind and solar equipment, planes and trains, and I suppose automobiles too. But in any case, Rogers has been around since 1832 and has been publicly traded since 1960. The ticker is ROG. If you look at the last couple of years, the company's shares have been on a roll. They jumped 111% in 2017 after climbing 49% in 2016. Well-received earnings reports contributed to Rogers' gains, and today, fourth-quarter results that didn't go over so well caused the stock to give back some of them. Earnings trailed analyst average estimate in a Bloomberg survey for the first time in two and a half years. It was all about the bottom line. Top line actually looked okay, uh, beating estimates. Rogers attributed the profit shortfall to higher commodity prices, along with the cost of making some investments in its business. When you put it all together, this stock, Rogers, ROG, down at almost 21.5% at its low point of the day. And even though the stock did manage to make back some of those losses, still closed down 12%, steepest decline in a year and a half. Not to be confused with Rogers Communications. Not at all. We're our old friend, Although Jeff. it may very well be that Rogers Corp Equipment is on Rogers Communications Networks, just to confuse things. Uh, well, and, actually, and, of course, Bloomberg has a partnership with Rogers Communications. Our old friend, John Ehrlichman. Peter Rogers, okay. who founded the company. Remember John Ehrlichman? Yes, indeed. He He's up there and doing good stuff up in Toronto right now. All right. I was just going to say, Peter Rogers, uh, paper manufacturing, 1832. Thanks very much. Dave Wilson. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. And follow us on Twitter. She's at Carol Masser, and I'm at Corey TV.